Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief for April 28th, 2023. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. I've got a bit of an exciting announcement uh, coming here in a moment, uh, but first I'll just cover some of the topics that I'll be uh, going through today in the Rogers Brief, uh, where I cover legal topics on a weekly basis, and uh, usually they're from Nova Scotia, Canadian uh, legal cases or stories with legal angles. Uh, sometimes international, but today it's going to be a, a Canadian-focused uh, uh, program or uh, discussion. I'm going to talk about the electoral boundaries uh, map, which has been finalized for Nova Scotia. There was uh, some back and forth with parliamentarians and a parliamentary uh, committee, and it went back to the electoral boundaries uh, commissioners for Nova Scotia, and they've come out with uh, their decision. Uh, on the objections that were made by uh, some of the government MPs. I'll talk about that. I'm going to talk about some uh, new federal legislation, one that's just been enacted, which was C-11, which is the Online Streaming uh, Act uh, legislation. And the other has uh, been introduced, and this is to do with uh, there's uh, publication bans for uh, certain uh, cases with involving sexual offenses. And then also uh, some changes to how the sex offender registry is going to now operate in Canada. This is following a Supreme Court of Canada decision last year that struck down certain uh, mandatory parts of that. So we'll talk about that briefly. And then uh, there's some Nova Scotia cases. Actually, I'm going to talk about a, a sentencing circle, uh, just the, some of the nuts and bolts of how that operates. I'm in the middle of one of those now and talk about some of uh, the timing issues and some other stuff that goes with that. And then uh, I'm going to talk about a Nova Scotia, well, several Nova Scotia cases, but I'll focus on one, which is a, a sentencing decision on a drug case that came down last week from Justice uh, Robin Gogan. Uh, in, uh, actually, it was out of a Port Hawkesbury case. So, uh, but first, uh, I want to make a little announcement, and this is that I, I have a book coming. Uh, I've written a book. This is uh, a little bit pre-pandemic. I started on this, uh, but uh, mostly during the pandemic when a person had a little more time in their hands. Uh, I mentioned this. It really doesn't have much to do with what I talk about here on a weekly basis, but uh, you'll be seeing some of this in the YouTube uh, stream. If you're following uh, my YouTube uh, videos, uh, you'll be seeing a preview video for this and some promotional stuff, as to which a person has to do. I'm going to be publishing this on Amazon. Um, those, that, those that have been uh, listening in on some of the Rogers Brief stuff will know that I have uh, published a, a book, a report, a competing report to the Mass Casualty Commission's final report, which I called, my, mine was called Deficits of Trust. And I published that on Smashwords, which is an e-book publishing service. And you can get those on different uh, book online sources as well. Uh, this one, this time I'm going to be going with the Amazon, uh, it's called Kindle Direct Publishing, and it's uh, a method, you can get the ebook, and it's going to be about a $10 purchase, but you can also get a paperback, which uh, they'll, a lot of people prefer to have the, uh, the physical copy, so I'll be able to have some of those. Now, it's not, you know, if you've been following me through this, these videos and the legal analysis of particular cases and the, the Mass Casualty Commission, uh, this is not quite that. Uh, this is going to be a book of legal and political philosophy. Uh, before law, I took a, 
a business degree, but I took a lot of philosophy courses too, and I've continued an interest in that. So it's, uh, yeah, an, I guess an identification of what I see as a trend in legal and political philosophy. It's a change. And then also uh, how a person is going to live under such a framework. And it's aimed at a broad audience. So the people that I'm, I'm trying to connect with here through these videos and through, uh, you know, the nighttime podcast, other venues where I try to talk to people about legal issues, I'm aiming this at a broad audience and, uh, you know, intelligent and curious regular people. I guess that's how I'd put the broad audience. The title of the book is uh, Post-Atheist post 21st Century. The Post-Atheist 21st Century. And it's... Uh, the subtitle is An Evolution in Democratic Governance and Personal Meaning. Now, uh, it's not an anti-religious book, uh, really, despite the provocative title. A person has to little, have a little bit of, uh, of a provo provocative title in there to get people's attention. Actually, the, uh, the cover, which I'm quite proud of, I designed that myself, uh, that's uh, going to be the cover of it. It's a little uh, creative and provocative as well. I'll try to get some attention. It's kind of uh, thematically, it's, it's looking at big picture changes over the you know, last few centuries in democratic governance. It's a little bit based on the uh, Thomas Piketty uh, capital in the 21st century. That's kind of where I evolved the title. And it's uh, looking at sort of a broad trends in philosophy, in political philosophy, and sort of tying these things together. And it came through my work involvement on the board of Engage Nova Scotia. And people might be familiar with the major, if they're from Nova Scotia, the uh, survey that went out a few years ago about quality of life initiatives and, and wellness stuff. And it connects to what's going on in different parts of the world, like New Zealand, Iceland, Scotland, where they've been, you know, uh, doing these wellness budgets, dealing with quality of life measures. So, it's governance structures that are free from ideology. So, you know, you've got you know nationalist governments, capitalist societies, communist, uh, socialist societies, all with their own structures. And I view these as constraints. You know, they're constraints of you know better decision making, which, when you're looking at things in a broader quality of life measure, opens up some of those things, breaks down some of those barriers. And I see this as a governance trend that matches sort of, you know, natural selection, the capitalist market, how it's sort of an open-ended, you know, let's, let's see what happens, let's see what people want. Astrophysics has these same kinds of things. And then there's philosophical trends in science, medicine, and technology that are sort of matching this, right? So what it is is evolution-free of constraints. And in our governance structures and ideologies, you know, you say, all right, well, is something a, a good law? Well, does it match the capitalist structure? Well, if so, yes. Well, maybe instead of having those ideological structures and referencing them whenever we need to make a big decision, that we should be thinking in broader terms. So that's kind of where the, that's the, the idea of it. It picks up on a, a jurisprudence paper that I did back when I was at Dalhousie Law School. And, uh, you have to do major papers in your th second and third year there. My, my third year was on a question of legal authority since the death of God, which, again, it's a provocative title. It's not talking so much about religion, but of course it does. But it's like, well, 
you know, Nietzsche declares the death of God in Thus Spake Zarathustra. Okay, normally, you know, you, in the old days, you'd say, all right, well, is this law a good law or not? Well, is, does it align with what the Bible says, with, with what we think God would say? Well, if so, yes, and if not, no. Well, with, without that reference point, without that sort of North Star, uh, you know, you look at, does it fit the capitalist market? Does it fit, you know, is, is authoritarian regimes uh, appropriate? You know, are these other ideologies uh, potentially in there? Is it just, you know, scientific? Whatever's possible is, is permissible. Those are kind of the questions, and so I, I provide an answer, and I provide another, a deeper answer, I'm thinking not in terms of just lawmaking, but in terms of, you know, governance in this, this book. So I talk about, you know, environmental issues, um, you know, medical assistance in dying, technology, economic inequality, these kind of big picture questions and how those can be answered with this new structuralist structure. And, you know, so, so I start with that, and then I say, all right, well, great, you've got this, you know, there's no eternal existence or foundational ideology, so, all right, great, how are we supposed to live under those circumstances? Well, you know, you've got 70, 80, 90 years to, to go, how do you find meaning with that? Well, people have that temporary existence. Well, you know, our responsibilities give our lives meaning. What does that mean? Is our whole life relevant or only the parts that are public uh, that other people can witness or perceive? I'll talk about that. And then our technological future, uh, is it going to be uh, you know, more freedom-oriented? Are these technology developments going to be constraining to our freedom? How is that going to operate? And then talk about how understanding the artificiality of all of it in a, you know, in a sense, a lot of this is artificial. How understanding that can build resilience. So I think it's pretty good. I, I worked on it for a long time. Uh, it's not that long. It's not as long as uh, as Capital. I think it's about 140 pages or so. I had a, I had a lot more in there, but I didn't have. I didn't hire an editor. I sell, I'm self-publishing this, but I worked on it enough that I think I cut out the uh, cut out the you know parts that you didn't need to bother reading. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, just wanted to let people know that because, like I said, it's going to be uh, something I'm promoting uh, through social media and stuff, so I'll be uh, talking about that a little more. All right, so that was more time than I intended to spend on that, but that's, uh, that's that. Okay, first thing I want to talk about here is uh, the electoral boundary. <laughs> so I'm going to get into the legal issues, uh, which is a bit of a segue, but... Um, the Electoral Boundaries Commission. I talked about this a number of times here and uh, in other places. Well, in Nova Scotia, all right, so across the country, every 10 years with the new census data, the uh, Electoral Boundaries Commission, which is an independent third-party operation, uh, resets the federal election electoral boundaries. Done so in Nova Scotia. And the commission did some consultations, three-person commission, and sent the report into Parliament. The Parliamentary Committee, uh, PROC, P-R-O-C, committee that studies this, uh, heard some objections from Nova Scotia Liberal MPs. Uh, Sean Fraser, Minister of Immigration, uh, Jaime Batiste, uh, MP for Sydney, Victoria, and uh, Lena Diab, who's the MP for Halifax West. And uh, all three lawyers, by the way, which is relevant, and they, uh, 
it's gotten very little media attention actually i i noticed the so that they they made their objections and after they make their objections and the committee approved of those objections you know basically they wanted the the boundaries to go back they said they weren't consulted properly and that they didn't take into account the changes didn't take into account proper uh, communities of interest and these sorts of things so and then uh, Jaime Batista talked about the UN Declaration of for the Rights of Indigenous Persons and how you know there wasn't proper consultation in the community of Eskasoni, which got moved from Sydney, Victoria, to the uh, new Cape Breton uh, Anakinish riding, uh, rural Cape Breton and eastern Nova Scotia riding, and so there was lots of uh, complaints from that, and so the committee agreed with those complaints, sent the issue back. This is the procedure sends it back to the commission to consider. Normally, in the past, uh, you know, issues like okay, you got the name, you know, the name of the new riding doesn't make any sense, like something superficial like that, and the commission would make such changes. Well, this time it was the boundaries, and so I felt this was uh, an attempt by the government to gerrymander these ridings for political purposes, having very little to do actually with the. Uh, the stated issues that they were talking about and the commission agreed so this to me you know this is a 25 page report that the commission came out with just released yesterday publicly although it was submitted on the 21st uh, to the to the government it sounds like so uh, the this should be a major embarrassment I think for the government I mean they first of all made what I think is an illegitimate attempt to gerrymander the ridings in the first place and now they've been uh, told by the commissioners, uh, the head commissioner of whom is uh, Justice Cindy Bourgeois of the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal, a highly respected judge, that their complaints didn't make any sense. And they you know, struck down every complaint. The only thing that they agreed with was Sean, Sean Fraser's wish that the uh, electoral district not be called Picto Eastern Shore, but rather remain called uh, as Central Nova. So it shows something about lawyers as politicians. You know, lawyers uh, and different levels of persuasion. You know, lawyers can you know sometimes persuade a, a regular audience of uh, something, or you know, people that aren't really paying attention, and they all right. Well, that sounds like it makes some sense. But then when you know there's a different level of um, persuasive you know, effort needed and precision and, you know, just logic needed when you're trying to make an argument that's going to be scrutinized by a justice of the Court of Appeal. So, uh, and, you know, Professor David Johnson from uh, Cape Breton University, I can't remember the third commissioner's uh, name at the moment, but they had uh, very little time for that. I'm going to go through some of the uh, report conclusions. Okay, so they changed the name, and in all other respects, it remained unchanged. It said the procedural fairness concerns, so this was the concerns that they didn't go uh, do enough consultation. It said there is no validity to the complaints regarding the lack of notice, the number and location of meetings, improperly changing uh, electoral boundaries shown in the proposal to those in the final report, and lack of consultation with particular communities or groups. Uh, it goes through all the notices that they put in the newspapers. It was advertised, social media, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, everything was online to, to be seen if people were looking. It says the commission exceeded the statutory requirement to hold one hearing 
for the presentation. They held eight in-person hearings and one virtual, a ninth virtual hearing. So they went above and beyond in that respect. And there was an issue in the Anakinish meeting, actually, which I attended, and they had to move it to a, a bigger location that day. And the commissioners explained that it wasn't their fault. It was the minister, Minister Fraser's office that started promoting this as open to the public rather than open to those who apply to speak. And so a much bigger crowd showed up or was, uh, you know, they heard it was going to be a bigger crowd. They moved it to a hotel boardroom, which was able to accommodate everybody. And so they talk about that in the report as well. And they uh, talk about how, oh yeah, so Jaime Batiste, one of his complaints was there was no indication in the initial report that there might be changes to the writings in the later report. Well, the, they say, well, the contents of the final report clearly reflect the commission considered the public presentations at hearings and received in writing and that these gave rise to changes from the initial proposal. That is exactly how the redistribution process is intended to work. Uh, they're not bound by their initial proposal. They're supposed to actually listen to the people that come and make presentations, which they did. And so they struck down Ms. Uh, Diab's assertion that they, there should have been a meeting in Halifax West. And then they go on. The commission responds similarly to Mr. Batiste's allegation of procedural unfairness because the electoral boundaries of the two ridings in Cape Breton were different in the final report than in the initial proposal. Mr. Batiste suggests this change came without notice and was a shock to himself and his constituents. He says he had no reason to expect the boundaries in the proposal would be changed in the final report. With respect, this demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding on his part of the redistribution process. Very critical of uh, him. Uh, and then they later say, it is unfortunate Mr. Batiste did not take note of the media reports relating to the commissioner's work and disseminate it to his constituents. His failure to do so does not equate to a breach of procedural fairness by the commission. They went through some of the media reports that talked about some of the potential changes. And then uh, given the, they say, given the importance of the issue, the commission will address some of the in some detail, the assertion that the constitutional rights of Indigenous people and the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Persons were infringed by the failure to consult and obtain their views. And Mr. Batiste has threatened to take legal action, so they feel that they should state the accurate state of the law. So when do, uh, when is there a duty to consult? There's the Vanderpeet uh, test from the Supreme Court of Canada. And the duty to consult is kind of a specific thing. You know, it's not just, you know, broadly framed, as, uh, as Jaime Batiste put it. There's a three-part test. First of all, you have to characterize the right claimed in light of the pleadings. All right. Second, you have to determine whether the claimant has proven that a relevant pre-contact practice, tradition, or custom existed and was integral to the distinctive culture of the pre-contact society. All right. And then thirdly, determine whether the claimed modern right is demonstrably connected to and reasonably regarded as a continuation of the pre-contact practice. So it's not just every decision that might conceivably affect an Indigenous community, it has to be something that has that connection to a pre-contact right. And in addition, and they talk about how Justice Beverly McLaughlin noted this, that it doesn't, it applies to the Crown, not to third parties. And so uh, they talk about uh, how 
the commission itself is a third party. The commission is not the government. The commission is independent of government and it's intended to be that way. Uh, so, and they talk about the cases that Jaime Batiste referenced in his communication to the committee. And they said, a review of the authorities relied on by Mr. Batiste demonstrates their questionable relevance to the matter at hand. And they go through the cases. There's the uh, Simon uh, 1985 case, R versus Denny, 19, or sorry, 1985, 1990 Denny case, and the uh, Donald Marshall decision. All right, and in those cases, uh, none of them uh, had anything to do. Those, uh, the Simon case was a, a hunting case, uh, the Denny case was a fishing uh, case, and the Marshall decision was also a fishing case. And in none of those three cases, uh, they said the decision is silent as to any potential treaty rights in relation to the federal constituency in which Mr. Marshall existed, Mr. Simon and Mr. Denny respectively. So there was nothing that had in any of those decisions a specific reference to the uh, electoral district. So they go through, uh, you know, how, and then it's not pre-contact because a right to effective representation in a settler-imposed system of government cannot be seen as a right held by the Mi'kmaq people prior to European arrival. All right, so that's, you know, it has nothing to do with electoral boundaries. And then they go through the UN Declaration of, Independ uh, of Rights of Indigenous uh, People. And, you know, Jaime uh, Batiste says, yes, this has been adopted in uh, legislation by the federal government. Well, the commissioners point out, yes, it has been adopted. But part of the act is uh, section six that once uh, the minister must complete an action plan as soon as practicable, but no later than two years after the day on which this section comes into force. All right, so the section came into force in 2021. Here we are in 2023, two years later, and an action plan has yet to be completed. So there is no action plan. A draft action plan uh, is available, but has nothing to do and speaks not at all to electoral boundaries. Uh, so it's still a work in progress. So uh, in conclusion, the uh, commission says that the objections relating to the duty to consult are without merit and uh, goes on to deal with the objections from the other members of parliament as well for the uh, the boundaries and uh, goes through one of the, the other one that uh, Jaime Batiste had mentioned was the uh, you know it was going to affect the, the potential for an indigenous person to be elected as an MP and they say, with respect, Mr. Batiste's assertion that Mi'kmaq persons will have reduced electoral power in Cape Breton, Canso, and Kanish is simply incorrect. And they say uh, now they make up 10% uh, of, uh, of the riding he represents. They will make up 12.4% of the new riding. That is over double the provincial average of 5.4% of the population. And though the commission has increased 
not reduced the electoral power of the five Mi'kmaq communities in this riding. It has improved, not undermined, the potential to elect a Mi'kmaq member of parliament. Mr. Batiste's concern in this regard is unfounded. And uh, they made one more criticism of that in because uh, Jaime Batiste had mentioned that he had a concern that the language weight of Mi'kmaq would be reduced and that it's uh, he characterized Cape Breton Cancer as a nearly unilingual uh, Anglophone riding and the, the commissioners say to the contrary this proposed riding has a rich linguistic tapestry of not only English but French, Gaelic and Mi'kmaq. Eskasoni's website acknowledges this linguistic diversity and notes their close ties to the Cape Breton Gaelic and French tradition. So, uh, quite the report from the Electoral Boundaries Commission. I went through that in some length because uh, I thought it was important. And uh, Anyway, there's not been much media coverage of that, so hopefully people will pick up on that a little bit and uh, see it for what it is. All right, so <laughs> I'm looking at the, uh, we're at 25 minutes now, so I'm going to go through some of the other stories fairly quickly. They're not uh, uh, they're, they're not ones I was planning to cover in as much depth in any event. All right, so the next thing I was going to talk about is the new federal legislation. C11 has passed. This is the online streaming legislation meant to protect uh, Canadian content in the streaming services, Disney+, Plus, Netflix, Crave, etc., problem people had this with this is that it was going to also cover user-generated content and so there was a lot of concerns about censorship uh, YouTube TikTok, other social media platforms worried about algorithms being manipulated so that if you were searching for things from Canada that you would be forced in a sense to go uh, endure or be directed to Canadian content artificially and the senators uh, that reviewed this legislation tried to do an amendment that would uh, carve out user-generated content. The parliament, the government, refused to accept that amendment while at the same time trying to give assurances that it wasn't being targeted. So it was a little unclear as to whether that's a true commitment or not. We'll see as it goes on. All right, next, uh, the other two, uh, or the other piece of legislation deals with uh, sexual assault offenses. One side of it is this publication ban issue. And the issue is sometimes, you know, when there's a publication ban, it's meant to protect the victim. Sometimes the victim wishes to speak out, and uh, this prevents them from doing so. And it was brought to a foref the forefront in 2021 in Ontario. A Waterloo woman, I think, was fined $2,000 for violating the publication ban, and it was her own name that was, she was trying to reveal, uh, you know, so what's going on now is that a hearing will be required. If somebody wants to uh, violate or wants to, you know, have the publication ban dropped, well, they'll have to apply to the court to do so. Problem with that is this, that the perpetrator, the, uh, you know, then convicted uh, person will ha have the right to have a say as well. Now, the minister, Lametti, has said that the only real reason he can think of why a judge wouldn't grant a request to lift the publication ban. If some people want to, you know, they want to speak out on these issues they should be entitled to, would be as if the revelation of one person's name might effectively reveal another victim's name. Well, that's a fair, a fair issue, but that can be dealt with uh, 
without this blanket requirement. Problem with, you know, there's delay issue. It can take, you know, a month or two months sometimes to get into court to get an application heard. Uh, and, you know, if something happens and people feel strongly that they want to talk about it right away, that's, that's a problem. And then it re-victimizes them because then you have the perpetrator in that's going to have a say as well and the person has to interact with them potentially and so it doesn't seem appropriate that that would be. Uh, it should be the right of the victim to publicize the issue if they feel, that, feel fit to do so. Second part of that legislation that's coming out and it's going to be debated is about the sex offender registry. Last year, the Supreme Court uh, uh, ruled that some of the automatic registration was an overbroad uh, thing, and so they wanted some amendments to it. The government has now brought in those amendments. Some will, some offenses will still be automatic, like a child-related sexual offense or a repeat offender. For others, it'll be a reverse onus. In other words, so you'll be put on the registry unless you can prove that it's unjust that you are. Uh, rather than the crown having to show that it's justified that you do, it's a reverse onus. That seems appropriate as well. Last part I'm not quite so sure about. I have to think more or see how the debate unfolds. And this is adding a non-consensual intimate image uh, sharing convictions to the uh, sexual offender registry. Uh, harmful, you know, harmful stuff certainly, but a different level than uh, sexual offenders. Uh, physical offenses. All right, so uh, that's this new legislation. We'll be watching that as it unfolds. Uh, some Nova Scotia cases this week. Actually, one case, I'm just going to mention a sentencing circle situation that I'm involved in. Uh, people may think this is a, it's a good process when it unfolds. It's not a simple process. I had a decision on January 27th. A uh, person was found guilty, Aboriginal offender. Made a request that day for a sentencing circle. We are now into May, uh, uh, the next court date. We've had four court dates adjourning this because it has to go through uh, Mi'kmaq Legal Services Network to be approved in the first case. And then once they approve it, then it has to go to the chief and counsel of the relevant band to have their view of it. So now the next meeting of the chief and counsel, they didn't hear it last month. It'll be May 1st. We'll maybe get it uh, word May 2nd. So. It's going to be four months, and the person's in custody before they get the sentencing circle uh, potentially underway. So certainly not timely justice. All right, so uh, just a, a word on that. We'll see if, uh, if that improves or if there's a... Anyway, that seems to be a structural problem in sentencing circles. It's something that should be more widely available, but if this is the process, I can see why it's not more widely utilized. Some Nova Scotia cases that were released this week. I'm only going to talk about one of these in any depth. Uh, there's, but if you're interested, they're on the Nova Scotia Courts website. There's CK, which is a child protection case where a child was put into permanent custody. You can see some of the factors uh, that go into that kind of a decision. There's uh, two uh, pimp cases with the Court of Appeal. One was Chambers, uh, a self-represented, uh, trying to trying to have his appeal uh, heard that was rejected by the Court of Appeal, uh, TJF, and talk about initials and publication bans. This was a human trafficking appeal as well, which was rejected. Uh, and then the fourth one that I won't talk about much is Atlantic Paving. It's kind of an interesting case when I read it, which is uh, occupational health and safety violation alleged, which was an undischarged explosive found on a worksite. 
And uh, so problem of, well, that's a violation, a safety violation, but actually they were found not guilty. So uh, a decision there on how maybe a reflection of uh, how difficult it is to get a conviction in occupational health and safety cases. The one I will talk about just briefly is Glenn Boudreaux sentencing by Justice uh, Robin Gogan in uh, Sydney. Uh, Alexander McKillop, a former colleague of mine, great young uh, defense lawyer out of Halifax, was the defense lawyer. Scott Miller and Drew McQuarrie for the Crown. Lesson here, the, the reason I want to talk about it, it's a sort of a lesson on how, or indication of how bad criminals can be at crime. So this uh, person, uh, Glenn Boudreaux, he had 775 grams of uh, cocaine, $12,000 in cash, 82 grams of uh, crystal meth, 50 grams of mushrooms, 30 grams of cannabis, 2.5 milligrams of steroids, a, a digital scale, and two phones seized. So a mid to high level uh, retailer or a low level wholesaler uh, in cocaine. You know, that's, you know, at least $50,000 worth of cocaine there. Uh, stopped in on the Trans-Canada Highway, or sorry, Highway 104 Whiteside in May of 2019, 22 years old, he was speeding, he was driving erratically. There was an overwhelming strong smell of marijuana coming from the car when he was pulled over. So lesson to criminals, you know, Jesus, if you're doing these, if you're doing these drug runs, stay in the speed limit, drive normally, don't get all messed up before you go driving. Uh, don't smoke a joint in the car if you've got $50,000 worth of coke in the shoebox in the back. Anyway, uh, sentencing. Sentencing for cocaine, uh, starting point is usually two years for even the lowest level. This, uh, the range the judge said for this level, the you know high, mid-level retailer, low-level wholesaler, was uh, typically five to eight years. Judge went, uh, Crown requested four years. Defense re requested a conditional sentence, a house arrest sentence of two years. Judge went with four years. So below the normal range, but a 22-year-old, had a very poor upbringing and uh, with no real guidance. Uh, so judge went with four years, which is, of course, a, a long time when you're in jail. Uh, and so that's, that's a sentence for that. So anyway, I thought that would be an interesting sort of light, uh, light into what we see sometimes in the, in the court system. Uh, not always the most uh, brilliant of offenders, or I guess they wouldn't be there. But uh, okay, that's, uh, that's it for today. For this week, uh, thank you everybody for watching. Uh, thank you for listening. It'll be uh, more to come. Uh, you'll see uh, more posts coming out about uh, the post-atheist 21st century. I'll be talking uh, with Jordan Bonaparte and Paul Palango this Sunday night for the nighttime podcast. So tune into that quarter after nine on uh, YouTube Live Sunday evening. And otherwise, we'll see you back here next week. So thanks again for watching. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time.